this is Jonathan Keller from California Family Council. And this is John Girardi from California Family Council. We are here today as your hosts of the new CFC podcast, Life, Family, Liberty. And we are very excited and honored to be joined by our good friend, Matt Bowman, who is an attorney with the Alliance Defending Freedom in Washington, D.C. Matt, how's everything going today? It's going great, gentlemen. Awesome. Well, I know you've been quite busy, had a lot of eventful weeks between the big Supreme Court case uh, tomorrow that's coming up, the the death of Associate Justice Antonin Scalia, and also some updates on the AB 775 case. So starting today, we're going to kind of focus on the pro-life angle of what CFC does. But before we get into that, do you want to just tell us a little bit about you personally and what you do there at Alliance Defending Freedom? Sure. Alliance Defending Freedom is a nonprofit legal organization that defends religious liberty, the sanctity of human life, and marriage as one man, one woman. And I'm on our pro-life team. And within that, I focus on protecting the right of pro-life people to live their convictions in society. Awesome. And how long have you been there at Alliance Defending Freedom? It's coming up on 10 years. And before that, I was working for various judges in the federal court system for three years. And in law school, I was also in our program for law students, which is called the Blackstone Fellowship, which is a training program to help Christian law students and constitutional originalist law students understand the principles of our republic and implement those in their career. So one of the things, just as a side note, I'm so grateful for Alliance Defending Freedom is the fact that they have legal experts across the country that are both lay attorneys, uh, I guess you could call them, (laughs) affiliate associate attorneys, but then they also have experts like Matt that are really uh, well-versed in policy that can come and help argue on behalf of clients in all 50 states. And Matt, uh, last month, you actually came out to our neck of the woods here in the San Diego area. You argued with Judge John Houston, the Honorable Judge Houston out of the Southern California area. And can you tell us about that case with AB 775 and the current results and status of that case? Sure. Well, I guess you could say argued with him. It was more like a discussion. Argued in front of him. I'd I'd, (laughs) I'd say it's probably more accurate, John. I argued near him. (laughs) <laughs> and I argued with I argued with the government, but what the government, your government, of course, is now doing is forcing pro-life pregnancy centers, centers that simply exist to offer women real help and hope, so they don't feel that they must choose abortion. The government is forcing these centers to, in some cases, promote abortion, refer women on how to get free abortions. In other cases, to clutter up their advertisements and their walls with messages that are designed to scare women away. So we filed a case in in the court there in San Diego saying the First Amendment not only protects your right to speak, it protects you from the government forcing you to say things that you don't want to say when you're in a nonprofit organization and you are simply engaged in in the process of communicating your message and providing assistance to people in society. And the judge took our arguments, and eventually he did say that he didn't think we were correct. And that's disappointing. Other judges around the country have disagreed with that, have issued court orders to block laws like this, but we immediately appealed the case. Now it's up at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the uh, court that'll be just under the Supreme Court. And it's on a process where we are about to present 
our written arguments to the Ninth Circuit, and then we'll have this discussion again with judges there, and then we'll see where the case goes after that. Uh, just to clarify for us, Matt, uh, so this is right now you're still at the stage of trying to get a preliminary injunction to stop the law from coming into effect. You're not necessarily arguing the case on its merits yet, correct? That's technically correct, although the the merits of the case largely overlap. What, what we're saying is, Judge, this is a new law. This is a law that's very suspect when the government's forcing people to say things. And those people aren't engaged in commercial transactions. and They're engaged in this very ideologically uh, important issue. Then in that case, uh, you really should block this law while the case goes on. And we're hoping uh, – we asked if he would do that, and, and he – and he did not, but we're asking the Court of Appeals now for that. Uh, theoretically, the case could go on uh, after that, uh, after that whole process is over. But it's largely a pretty straightforward issue. Does the First Amendment let the government single out pro-life centers, which is what the, the state of California essentially admits it did here, single them out because it doesn't agree with them, and force them to say things uh, to women on a very controversial issue when they're engaged and simply the practice of, of trying to advocate their position in society on that issue. It's encouraging to me, at least, that it sounds like your clients here in our state, the pregnancy centers down in the San Diego area, they are not taking this line down. They are willing to appeal this uh, as far as necessary. It, it sounds like they are not going to compromise their sincerely held religious beliefs. Well, they're very courageous. I mean, they're already on the front lines of of a very contentious battle, and they're doing it with compassion, with love, with offering women caring help and non-judgmental information and assistance, free medical assistance in some cases. And we not only represent two centers in San Diego, but uh, San Diego County, but we represent a network uh, called the NIFLA, the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, which has over 100 pregnancy centers in its network throughout the state of California. So we're, it's always a great honor to represent people who are doing such wonderful ministry to people who are hurting and who just need help and support. Well, that's really good news. All right. Uh, just to shift gears here, Matt, we wanted to give our listeners an update on a case, uh, Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt. The Supreme Court's about to hear oral arguments on it. Could you give us maybe for some of our listeners just a quick rundown of what this case is about, what the central issue is here. Sure. This is a case that the Supreme Court is actually going to hear uh, what today is, is tomorrow morning, Wednesday, mm-hmm. March 2nd. And they're going to hear argument in this case. It comes from Texas. The state of Texas passed a law that said, look, if you're going to do abortions, you have to comply with the same kind of health and safety regulations that any other ambulatory surgical center complies with. So people come into a center for outpatient surgery They've got requirements like the hallways have to be big enough to push a gurney down in case you get injured and they need to rush you out or or uh, various kinds of health requirements. And the abortion industry fought tooth and nail to resist this law because they're not in this industry for the safety of women. They're in it for money. And if you run a health center safely, it costs, it costs some more money uh, because sa- safety doesn't come cheaply. And we've seen from the infamous Kermit Gosnell case in Philadelphia that if you let abortion facilities 
uh, run rampant on the health of women without any regulation, without any oversight, which is what Planned Parenthood wants, you are going to have the worst kinds of horrible, gruesome, uh, macabre violations going on in those facilities because they're in a business of killing and a business of profit. They're not in it for women's safety. And that they fought this all the way up to the Supreme Court. And tomorrow they're going to walk in there and say, we shouldn't have to protect women's safety uh, the way that the state of Texas uh, wants to let women have the confidence that if they're going for an abortion, they're going to be just as safe as if they go for any other procedure. Matt, I think you really kind of cut to the heart of this case. I, I think I heard you on your great ADF podcast, Freedom Matters, a few weeks ago talking about the fact uh, the easiest way to tell which one of these centers, if you walk in, which one of these locations is either a abortion clinic or in the case out here in California, a, a free pro-life pregnancy center is just ask which one takes credit card. And it's a, it's such yeah. a great point that there is one group of uh, organizations here that is really in it for profit, like you said, and those are the ones it seems like in Texas and around the country that are are fighting tooth and nail against even sensible medical regulations. And the reason is that you cannot engage in a killing practice in a safe way. At the end of the day, if you're in the practice of of destroying. Uh, an unborn human being unnaturally reaching into the woman to destroy that human being. You can't do it safely. And so the abortion industry knows that if they are, uh, when, when Roe versus Wade made abortion legal throughout the country by uh, fiat of the Supreme court in 1973, they didn't get rid of back alley abortions. They just had the back alley clinics put their sign on the front door. And if you uh, require abortion facilities to, to operate, for the safety of women, they're not going to be able to do it. And that's why uh, abortions have been going down in the past few years and why pro-life pregnancy center help has been increasing. And the abortion industry knows that they have to they have to protect their ability to not treat women safely or else they just won't be able to keep doing this. I know it's hard to ask attorneys talking about Supreme Court decisions to look in their crystal ball and just tell us what's going to happen because obviously we don't know. But as far as... You know, Justice Scalia's passing. Obviously, now having only eight justices rather than nine changes the picture. Obviously, losing his presence on the court, it's going to affect the outcome. How, Just for our listeners, how do you think Justice Scalia's death could affect the outcome of this case positively or negatively? Justice Scalia was a champion of the constitutional principle that the court shouldn't be forcing state governments and local governments to advance a progressive political agenda when the Constitution gives them the freedom to pass laws. This Constitution gives local governments and states the freedom to protect women's safety from predatory abortionists. And Justice Scalia wrote that many times, so there's no doubt which way he would have voted on this case. You can't predict, and there's not really, it's really not possible to predict what will happen now? There's so many variables. Uh, the principles that we've discussed ought to be principles that any justice would agree with. But uh, look, we, this was. But let's move to a different case. In 2007, the Supreme Court decided Gonzalez versus Carhartt. That was the partial birth abortion case. The federal government banned partial birth abortion, and the abortion industry said we insist that there's a constitutional right to kill babies who are. 85, 90% born. And that vote was five to four. Justice Scalia was the fifth vote to say, 
the very modest principle that states can ban partial birth abortion, federal government can ban it. And if his vote were flipped in that case, we would be uh, under a Supreme Court that could mandate that partial birth abortion be legal again. That's what's at stake in Justice Scalia's vacancy on the court. And that's why the Senate, that the people elected in 2014, has said, we're not going to even hold hearings on the nominee of this president because it doesn't really matter who it is. The people are having an election in a few months and mandating partial birth abortion, eliminating the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, eliminating religious liberty protections. These are all too important to just give to a politician who's not on the ballot. We want people to decide, uh, weigh in on this in November and, and see what they think. And and that's uh, what the Senate, the position the Senate is taking. That's why. Now, one question that a couple of people have raised to me is obviously now we've got an even number of justices, not an odd one. And uh, in the event, we've got a four to four tie, uh, just for our listeners' uh, information out there, what happens? What happens if you've got four justices who say Texas's law is constitutional and you've got four justices uh, who say it isn't? Well, I, I think we need to back up. And even outside of this case, the, most Supreme Court cases aren't five to four. So the, a court with eight justices can decide a case that are five, three, six, two, seven to one. And so that's going to take care of upwards of 90% of the cases. Now, there will be some cases that might be four to four. Probably the court is not going to issue a ruling four to four. They're going to wait. And and waiting is very common. In fact, Roe versus Wade itself, which is, I think, uh, without too much dispute, the most controversial Supreme Court decision in the last 50 years, Roe versus Wade itself sat on the court's docket for almost three years because there were two court vacancies. Uh, they were holding it for some other cases that were up in the pipeline. And there's nothing procedurally problematic that keeps a, a court from holding a case for a while uh, if they have to. We don't know if that's going to happen. But I would suspect that uh, there was an article on this I read recently by Ilya Shapiro. And I would suspect that basically, if there's a handful of cases that are tied, they'll just wait until the ju- justice is seated. That won't, the, the, and those cases will not be waiting any longer than Roe versus Wade itself waited. And if Roe versus Wade can wait, whatever cases are on the term this, this year can wait. Let, let me ask you real quick, Matt. Um, I know, again, from listening to you and Carrie and Bob on Freedom Matters that you actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually had an opportunity to clerk for Justice Alito. Is that correct? I did. In fact, I was clerking for him when he was in New Jersey before he went to the Supreme Court. And then I was there when President Bush nominated him to fill the seat of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And then so, we, on his staff, helped him prepare for that. And then he went up on the court in the middle of the term, and the Senate actually ended up approving another court of appeals judge right into just literally into Judge Alito's office in New Jersey, who took us on for the rest of the term. So, yeah, I clerked for Judge Alito, and I did it during a nomination vacancy. It was, it was uh, quite dramatic. Well, I wanted to ask you on that. I, I, I'm sure it was uh, actually kind of exciting at the time for all that to happen. A, a lot of people are asking, kind of zooming up from these particular cases, the the AB 775 case and the whole women's health case, kind of to the whole issue of the Supreme Court and Justice Scalia's vacancy. Do, do you think that Justice Alito will be able, I know no one can fill Justice Scalia's shoes, but do you think that Justice Alito is going to be able to kind of grow and develop into that same strong voice for constitutionality and for originalism and textualism that we saw in Justice Scalia? Well, Justice Alito is already a strong voice. He's been on the court for 10 years now. 
for what the Constitution originally meant and following what the Constitution says, following what statute says, and not legislating from the bench. He has a different style than just Justice Scalia. No one is going to replace Justice Scalia. No one has replaced Oliver Wendell Holmes or, or Justice Cardozo or Justice Jackson or all the famous justices in the history. So everyone has a different style. There are scholarly articles about the slight distinctions and different kinds of original interpretations that maybe Justice Alito has implied, uh, applied and Justice Scalia has applied. But he is already that voice, but he's he has his own style. And no one can replace Justice Scalia, and no one's going to try. They're just going to try to be themselves. There are plenty of great court of appeals judges or other judges or lawyers or people in the legal field who could do a very good job on the court if they were appointed by a president who cared about the original meaning of the Constitution. None of them will be Justice Scalia, but they will be. They they have the potential to be great in their own right. Okay, well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I learned a thing or two, and I hope our listeners uh, learned a lot. Uh, We so appreciate you coming on to uh, give us updates on all of these important things. And uh, thanks so much, Matt. It's a great honor. I hope your podcast does well, and I'll be listening. I'll be subscribing. Thanks, Matt. And hey, I had one final question. Just for all the work that you and your team are doing at ADF, and specifically regarding tomorrow, Obviously, there's not a lot that California lay people can do, but if you had maybe a top one or two prayer requests for the thing tomorrow, what would we say? Well, you could pray that the safety of women becomes a central issue that touches the hearts of justices, even justices who might consider themselves pro-choice. And you can pray that through all the ups and downs of this court vacancy that God will guide the process and give a just outcome for women and their unborn children. I think that's something we can all certainly pray for. So, Matt, thanks again so much for joining us. And I'm Jonathan Keller. I'm John Girardi. Thanks for listening to Life, Family, Liberty, a podcast by California Family Council. We'll see you next time.